any of that I, don't, I feel like we just came in as right when the theme song ended and i feel like people are sad no 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 there's no way that anybody missed that um we have voices of angels uh this is episode 11 nonprofits. my name is my name is frankie french and this is black history month so bam, 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 bam. yeah we've been looking forward to this for a while um and we have Dr. Moss from Oliver Scholars again, and very excited to talk to her. We again, I think the proper term, Stephen, is not enough. I love her. I'm so excited <laughs> to have her on. Oliver Scholars is like top tier nonprofit. I love them so much. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that Frankie and I have been working on a couple different, shout out to anybody that uh, has anybody that has a company, just go ahead and call us. Um, but we're doing more work in discussing diversity and inclusion. We with, are. Uh, different corporate teams, right? And I'm really excited about it because it is this weird thing that you don't really see in that space where, you know, very often it's it's a white lady telling a bunch of other white ladies how diversity and inclusion should look. Um, and I think that this is kind of a cool uh, platform, a cool format to do it where it is a conversation between uh, a white person and a black person about. Uh, He's forcing me to have this conversation. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> right, yeah, well, I, that's why I keep on putting breaks in between what I'm saying because I'm really hoping you pick up the conversation because <laughs> I'm just incessantly uncomfortable having it but it is that's why I'm not saying anything because I want you to sit in the discomfort I think it's important <laughs> for our white ally I say it jokingly but I'm so serious I think it's important for our white allies to sit in their discomfort you know why because that discomfort is just a little little glimpse of how we live we meaning BIPOC folks specifically black this month, um, how we live daily, minute by minute, every day, all the time. You know what I mean? And so in a lot of ways, we black folks are desensitized to it. You know what I mean? Like when we were talking earlier, I'm like, we can have conversations about racism all day because we live it all the time. It's, it's an everyday occurrence. It's a minute by minute experience. So when we have that conversation, it's not really uncomfortable for us. And the intent isn't to make our white allies or counterparts to be uncomfortable. And when I say I want you to sit in the discomfort, it's not a punishment or, you know, a, a, well, this is my way of get back. It's kind of reparations. Okay, it's reparations a little bit. But the main thing is that it's important to have these honest, open conversations because if we don't, then nothing changes. If we pretend like racism was solved years ago, when, you know, we or months ago when we had the marches for George, George Floyd, Rihanna Taylor, <clears throat> all the unfortunate black souls that we've lost to police violence. And then we now turn around and pretend as if we held hands down in D.C. We marched, we got maced together and now racism is over. That's not real. And we and we, we can't live that way because no real we, we need systemic change. We need the systems to change. There's, there are actual, <clears throat> excuse me, this is a thing that pe a lot of people don't understand about racism. They think because people aren't necessarily openly saying the N-word that racism is gone. Well, things aren't as bad as they used to be. Things are actually worse. And you know why? Because we don't talk about the systems that were intentionally put in place to elevate white supremacy and to suppress any uh, movement for upward trajectory for BIPOC folks. That's the way the system was established. When we talk about our forefathers, those forefathers were not speaking for me. They were speaking to keep white, to put white people in a position and keep them in that position. And so those things from a structural perspective, those things need to change. You can't go and demolish a house and rebuild it on a foundation infested with termites because you know what's going to happen? that house is going to fall again 
and again and again. So what do you have to do? You have to dig out all of that rotted flesh, all of that rotted wood and rebuild from the foundation up and get everything on a steady, even sturdy plane. And then we can grow and then we can. And and so the eradication has to come from all of us making an effort to change policies, to get the right politicians in place and sometimes get non-politicians in place that have been vocal advocates for the uprising of all people. This is about all of us. We all need to be doing better. And if we're all doing better, guess what? Everybody feels good. Um, And so real quick, my apologies to Oliver Scholars. I thought I was being really cool and putting your logo in the background. (laughs) And I realized, wait a minute, (laughs) that's not the Oliver Scholars logo. So boom, I've updated it. We've changed. But um, so Stephen, so I do not want you to, you know, this isn't about you or any other white person or ally feeling shame. If you feel ashamed, then that's a self-check that you need to take. And you need to look at why you're feeling shame and then deal with it's not it's not a shame. It's an uncomfortable it's it's an uncomfortability. But without any uncomfortability, then there can be no growth. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, you have to look at where does that discomfort come from? Do you get what I'm saying? Why am I uncomfortable? Where where, what is that rooted in? Sure. You know what I mean? Because that that isn't very important, too. That's a really important conversation that needs to be had with self. And it, and it is different for different, per, for different people, right? Some for sure. It, some of it comes out of a guilt because of knowingly participating in a system. Some of it comes out of a guilt of unknowingly participating in a system. Some of it comes out of a, uh, just an uncomfortability of... It would be the same if you were born into money and you have to discuss poverty with somebody that is impoverished right like I, like it, a simil- a I mean, simil- look, if i can be honest for a minute if i was born into a lot of money i would be somewhere making it rain on hose okay let's just be honest sure. about that and and let's be real and let's be real i rain my whiteness on hose right? <laughs> <laughs> i mean sprinkle 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 that, it <laughs> that was the the social wealth that i was born into um but yeah i mean it's it it so it's not this thing of like it's an uncomfortability because you know it exists. You don't really know what the answer is and just kind of know you're going to have to talk through it to figure out what the answer is. And I hope, you know, uh, all sorts of um, miscon- uh, misperceptions of grandeur or whatever you call it, where I hope that if we are able to hit corporate America with this message, that is the Space that has the most potential to change and the most ability to create uh, long-standing change, right? Like, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think it's an a- it's absolutely an avenue and a tool, right? You know, corporations have what? Large corporations have what? Money. What does money bring? Power. What does power bring? Influence. You know what I mean? So it's definitely a trickling effect. It's definitely an opportunity where we can insert ourselves relatively quickly. Um, make an immediate impact and then actually, you know, see some, some change come. And then ideally, the ideal is that change trickles down into other things. You know what I mean? But when I say, you know, you don't need to be uncomfortable. What I mean is that I I think oftentimes our, our white counterparts, they feel uncomfortable because they feel like they're being blamed when the conversation of race comes up. It's the same. It's almost similar to when you're a black kid going to school And Black History Month comes around and you already know before you walk into class in that first Monday in February, you're like, okay, we're about to talk about slavery. Everybody's getting ready to turn and look at me. Hey, Frankie, what's slavery? What was slavery like when you were in it? You know what I mean? And and that is so uncomfortable. So I get it. I get the feeling. I definitely, your armpits get warm. Your heart starts to beat a little faster because it's awkward and uncomfortable. And all you want to say is, hey, black friends that I'm talking to race about with, y'all do know that I'm not part of the problem. Yes, I know I benefit from systemic racism, but also, you know that I try to do good. There's that desire for us to know that. And I, I think, at least I can speak for myself, when I'm having these conversations and people feel like, well, Frankie's being a little bit aggressive. Frankie's coming off, you know, a little accusatory. Frankie's scolding me when those feelings arise. 
It's not because I'm doing any of those things. It's happening because, like I said, I'm desensitized to the conversation. So I can have it. I can dig deep into it. I can be honest and open, upfront and bold about it because I experience all the, all the time. But in the same token, understand this, especially if I'm talking to you specifically, Stephen, I know you. I've known you for years. I know your heart. I, I don't think I think when we're having a conversation about race, my assumption is, hey, Stephen, let's talk about this thing that we both have pretty much the same views on. We have very similar views and ideas about. So I'm not even if it comes off as being accusatory or it comes off as or your perception is that know that that's not it. I'm coming from my frame of reference. So I'm not blaming you or upset with you or mad at you. However, and again, I will say this a million times over, we have to talk about it and we have to talk about it in real ways that are not just painful for white people. It's painful for us. We experience This is perpetrated against us intentionally. As crazy as that idea sounds like, wait a minute, Frankie. So a whole system was put in place against, yes, literally in our constitution, black people are, were specifically excluded. It was, we were, what, what uh, uh, the thir- oh, three, God. three fifths, thank you. Three fifths a person. We weren't even considered whole humans. You know what I mean? So how can you tell me, not you, Stephen, but how can anyone, police, you know what the police were created for? The police were specifically created initially to catch runaway slaves and bring them back to their owners. That star badge you see sheriffs wearing has not changed in hundreds of years. That's what the badge looked like. And it said, I think it said slave catcher was, was what was on the, on the badge. And they just scrubbed that off. They just sanded that down and, and put to protect and serve white people. They whisper the white people now. <laughs> it's on the back of the star. Right. If you flip it over, it's engraved on the back in parentheses with shh emoji underneath it. You know what I mean? So when we talk about systemic racism, what we're saying is the, the, origina- the original purpose of these systems was specifically to keep certain types of people down. Mm. With that being the truth, not my truth, not Stephen's truth, it's just a fact that is. How do we change it? That's the question. Why don't we change it? Why haven't we changed it? The anthem for the country we lived in, if you listen to the extended version, is literally about killing slaves, killing Black people. Literally is what that song's about. But Colin Kaepernick, lost his entire career because he won't stand up for that. To speak out against racial injustice within the police department. And at the same time, you see hundreds, thousands of white people not too long ago standing at our Capitol, our Capitol, right? This is our Capitol for all the people saying, it's time for us to take our country back. My question is from who? Who are you taking it from? The same one that you stole? That's weird. It's just, isn't that just returning property to his rightful owner? But whatever. I don't think, I think, I think we have enough space. We have enough love, money. We have enough of everything here that we can all be happy, safe, and warm. And that mentality of this is my country. It doesn't belong to any of us. If you're not native to this land, we are all immigrants. Some brought by a force, but whatever. We're not going to split those hairs. You know what I mean? But we're all, all of us are immigrants. None of us are from here. But we're all here now. And we, we have got, we're at a, a critical point. This is critical mass. We have to make things better for all of us. Humanity, it's about humanity. It's not even about black and white and Puerto Rican. It's not about that. We are a human race. I used to get in trouble every year in school because I would black out all of the races and I would write, I check other and I would put human from a little kid. I always did that. And they would call me, well, she needs to check black. And I would say, no, you're not going to, I'm not going to do it. You're not going to make me, you can't force me. You're not going to, I'm human. And that's what race I am. And you're not going to make me be anything different, but that's not, that's not what we're seeing as in reality. You dig? So don't feel bad, Steven. I'm your black savior. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're you're my black life raft in a sea of whiteness. 
You know what? That's a very weird. Um, <laughs> analogy, I, don't know, but, I don't know what that means. Um, but, can, I, can, I be, can I be like a like a scooter? You know, like one of the because I don't. I feel like black people in boats. We have like this weird relationship. That's uh, true, and I. <laughs> Maybe, maybe just, we'll just go regular companion. Yeah. You, I don't I have like to drive yeah. around the city. I feel like that has negative. Can we hold hands and skip through a field of daisies? True. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. To music? To music. To the, to the sound of music. With like, I'd love to have like black eyed peas just like live playing in the background. And then we're holding hands and skipping through a field of daisies. Oh, I was going to go something like, don't a deer, a female deer. Ray, a drop of golden sun. Me, you should never have started that song. It's literally one of my favorite show tunes. So, so what we wanted to chat about amongst mm-hmm. amongst all the things that you were talking about, one of the smaller pieces that's a little bit more focused and digestible is diversity inclusion in general, right? <laughs> Which itself is a whole myriad of uh different issues but sure. one like and you know we're kind of talking our own experience and stuff like that so i'm starting a company right and i am trying to be very cognizant of of uh you know hiring from howard and columbia and uh hiring black and latina um uh em- employees one of the things that I is funny, but I don't know how. To, and again, let's make me uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> I don't feel comfortable telling a black woman what to do as a as a as a person, <laughs> as a person, but like as a like boss, like it. Especially like, look, I mean, we're trying to build out a business where we're talking. Uh, where we're talking about doing diversity and inclusion discussions with corporate entities, which means I have to have that discussion with her and still have directives, right? Like I've, I've got to tell her what I need to be done and she's still in college. Like I do have the skill set and the knowledge base more so than her just because I've developed more through a professional career. But it is this space that I feel... I feel uncomfortable giving directives to a mm-hmm. black woman. And the, the immediate comment when I said that uh, on the immediate comment on Twitch, when I said that was just, you shouldn't. Okay. <laughs> is that a white lady saying that? That's probably a white lady. I'm going to assume it's a white lady. So um, <laughs> that's, so here's the thing as a, an actual black woman, I'm going to give just my perspective from, from, from my point of view. Right. I think that people in general, regardless of ethnicity or gender, I think people respect one thing above all else, and that's honesty. I think people respect honesty a lot, okay? I think also that it's important to, so when, you, when you're placating to someone because you feel like their perception may be, may be taken as you being oppressive, when you're saying, I don't want to train and help this young girl I don't want to give her directives because I'm white and she's black. That's actually racism too. You know what I mean? And, and it's not, it's not, you know, in the sense of you are trying to oppress her. Um, <laughs> my sister said that hilarious. Okay. Yes. So, so, <laughs> um, something you may not know. She was raised Caucasian. She's actually a white woman, but anyway, um, <laughs> but what I'm saying here is this, Stephen, you as her, manager, boss, however you want to want to phrase it, you have a few things. You have knowledge and experience as your company, right? You have an obligation. So I can speak from what I used to do when I managed people and I was responsible for their careers, right? In the sense of within this company, you report directly to me, regardless of ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation. My first thought was how can I positively affect this person's career, be it within this organization or outside of it? How can I help them grow? How can I help them learn? How do I find out what they're passionate about and what they want to do? Okay. So I feel like when you're working with someone, especially when they're in college and they're, they're in an internship, 
you have a huge responsibility because you're shaping her views on, on a corporate America. You're going to help shape how she works because that's your job, right? An internship is just an extension of college in a lot of ways. So in a lot of ways, you're her professor, right? Mm -hmm. So you have a responsibility and a job to teach, educate, and help her grow. And bigger than that, and or equal to that, and this is something I've learned through being a mother, you're going to be learning from her as well. Sure. You have to have an open, honest line of, of, of dialogue. And you can even tell her that you, you feel un- you want to be better in this area and you feel uncomfortable. And this is why I feel uncomfortable. What, how is that for you? How could I change, make it better, different? What do you need from me? How can we partner to make this a good experience for you? I learned from my, my daughter's 15. I've learned from her from the day she came out of my womb. I learned from her and she's helped me to grow. So this is a give and take relationship and don't short her on the experience of being an intern and learning because you're uncomfortable giving her direction. You know what I mean? And you can say, hey, this is the direction I think we should go in this area. I am not the expert and you going through the world as a black woman, you can tell me, you know, give me what do you think we could make this conversation about? How do you think we could talk about it? Make her part of the conversation. You know what I mean? There's lots of ways to go about it. Um, and, and I don't want you to short yourself because not giving direction, you're also not servicing your company because there's certain things that you need within your organization, right? And so you're doing a disservice to yourself first if you really want to really be honest about it because you're not giving this. Yeah, she's your employee for all intents and purposes. And you're not giving her proper direction to help take the company in the, in the, in the, the, the route that it needs to go. You know, so we can definitely talk about it more and ad nauseum because this is one of my favorite topics. But I think I think that it's really important for you to figure out how you want to frame that conversation and start. And can I and, and let me tell you, let me tell you as a black woman, who's, I'm about to tell you as a black woman um, who has been spent an extensive amount of time in corporate America. If one of my white managers had ever come to me. And sat me down and said, hey, you know what? I really want to talk with you about these things or people in our company about these things. I don't know how to do that as a white man. Would you be interested or available in having a conversation with me and helping me to grow and be better in that area? I can't tell you how big of a huge of a difference that would have made for my experience. Oh, my God. Just for someone to even notice the fact that, hey, you know what? Her experience is probably different than Jennifer's. Jennifer's white, by the way. I don't know if you guys picked that up. Yeah, yeah I her, picked it up. Her experience is probably different than Katie. Katie is also a white. You know what I mean? So if someone had even picked that up and thought enough to ask me, how can we? I make this experience better for you? I know that this is a, a real thing that happens and just acknowledge the reality of my experience amazing you may change the trajectory of this young lady's life you know do you, do you understand what i'm saying you might make her her entry into corporate america very different because she's going to say you know what every manager boss i have until i start my own company and become my own boss because i'm a strong ass black woman with the education behind her every person i work with up until now has to meet this standard can i can i say that yeah. um my dating app bio just says that I will change the trajectory of your life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I need you to change that immediately. (laughs) Let's uh, let's get Dr. Moss on and talk inclusion diversity. Let's, let's continue to. Oh uh, yes. Let's get my favorite, favorite. I love her so much. She's perfect and wonderful. I see it a little bit. Um, Yeah. Okay. So. Welcome, Dr. Moss. Thank you. Welcome back, guys. I feel like I'm a part of this show now. Um, Okay, first of all, first of all, Dr. Moss, you are a part of this show. That's why you feel that in your heart, okay? You are the lifeblood of this show, and we love you here, and we're happy to have you back. For those that have not seen you um, with us before, can you just give a brief, you know, as Stephen says, elevator pitch of what and who Oliver Scholars is? Sure. So I am the chief executive officer of a 36-year-old organization called Oliver Scholars. 
we identify high potential, high achieving black and brown middle school students, help them gain and help them gain access to the nation's most rigorous uh, independent day and boarding schools um, with the expectation that they will go on to successfully graduate from some of the nation's best colleges and universities and make a huge impact on the world. And um, I I think we're doing just that. What you guys do is absolutely incredible and absolutely amazing. And I know you guys watching don't know this, but Dr. Moss has been in the green room this entire time listening to our conversation. And it's been mainly about um, inclusion and diversity, just kind of as a general uh, discipline or requirement or however you want to phrase it. How, how does that impact? Because that's basically the foundation of what you guys do is making sure that black and brown students are included and immersed into these cultures and areas that will almost guarantee a positive future. You know what I mean? Where they may not have had access to these schools and colleges without Oliver Scholars. So one of the questions my sister actually had, I'll, I'll put her on blast. Sure. Um, she said how, and I think we talked about this a little bit, but I'd love if you would expound and go a little bit deeper. How are these students uh, supported once they're in these in- environments? As we were talking um, before you came on about Black History Month comes around, everyone looks so, Frankie, tell us about your personal experience with slavery. You know, what I mean? it's like I don't I was never I don't have that. But how are they supported so that they don't yeah. go through that culture shock? So I think one of the things I loved about this organization in particular, when I was um, looking for new opportunities, is um, that we don't approach this work with rose colored glasses. Um, and when I say that, I mean, we as an organization have always been fully cognizant that you don't pluck a young person of color from uh, modest means and drop them into an affluent private school and stir and everything is just gravy. So one of um, the hallmarks of our scholar immersion program is really centered on the time we spend giving young people the language and tools that they'll need um, to advocate for themselves, Mm -hmm. to navigate racism uh, as they encounter it. And also we talk a lot about class differences um, because, you know, I was talking to someone who actually is on our staff who is also a product of independent schools. And he was sharing that, you know, the first time he showed up on his campus, there were like Lamborghinis and Rolls Royces with drivers dropping the kids off. Like it's a level of wealth um, that in some ways may seem inconceivable to a lot of young people when they first come into these spaces. And so the time we spend really helping kids to own who they are, to feel good and proud about the, the assets that exist in their families, in their communities, is really central to helping them to find their way um, in these spaces. Um, But also it's equally important for them to have relationships and community with each other Um, Mm -hmm. because who understands more what it could be like for a kid from Brooklyn to go to, you know, a posh, um, you know, boarding school in Massachusetts than another kid from maybe the Bronx who's having the same experience. So it's that kind of community and the, and, and the relationships that alumni talk about as helping to carry them through that experience that are so central. Um, once the kids are placed um, in their independent schools, we have a whole staff and team that continues to reach out to the schools to check in on how they're progressing educationally and socially. Um, and that continues to create opportunities for them to come together with each other. Um, so the last time I was here, I was, I was with um, a member of our team who is one of those people who continues to support the kids once they're, they're attending an independent school. And she's, uh, you, wanna, you can shout her out if you like, because she's absolutely- Hey, Joanna, and she's also an alum of the program, right? So yeah. she, she has intimate- uh, experience and understanding of what that experience can be like. Um, it's, you know, the challenge is, and one of the things that makes Oliver so necessary is the reality that Black and Latino students are 60% less likely to be identified for gifted 
education mm-hmm. programs within the public school system. Um, even when their scores are identical to white and Asian students, they're still about 20% less likely to be referred. And the number one reason is teacher bias. Yeah. Right? People, regardless of how our kids are doing, I mean, this is kind of how caste works. It's like you have, we have all been programmed with this message of black intellectual inferiority um, Mm -hmm. that even when we see black and brown students shining academically, it doesn't change the programming. Mm -hmm. So educators still are challenged to respond to them um, based on the possibilities of their lives and, and what they could become because the central programming is rooted in, in black inferiority. And absolutely, I, I think there's a particular, um, th- there is something particular about um, the, dist- the descendants of enslaved Africans in this country as being at the very bottom of the social strata and other people of color, you know, based on their proximity or distance to mm-hmm. whiteness or blackness, you know, being along that spectrum. Um, Absolutely. Did you hear about that? a particular anti-Black bent to American racism that we also have to acknowledge. Um, And so that's one of the reasons that Oliver has been so particular in its language, that we do serve Black and Latino students because they are statistically and experientially at the bottom of everything um, Mm -hmm. in terms of outcomes by no fault of their own. And I think that's also something that we have to, you know, acknowledge and lift up. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Have you, did you, I don't, I won't name the school, but there was a private school recently within the last few months. Yeah, oh, you know, about the, uh, <laughs> first off, you know our, kid, our kids are at a lot of these schools, right? Um, so we, right, right. We, we get the tea before America. Before spilled, yes. Yeah. And there was, and if I'm not mistaken, one of the memorandums that went out was that they were going to do away with, the gifted and talented program because the black students couldn't keep up um, rather than looking at why these, the, the blacks, not the blacks, just the black students, but the black students that were basically bust in were not able to, to keep up. And one of the things that I was, I was asked to come on to a talk show and talk about that. And one of the things my takeaway was have they talked to these students and seen and discussed how they're being treated in these schools? Because I know when I was going to school, to, to an all-white school, I was treated horrifically. When I was in elementary school, I would literally have to hide in the bathroom during lunch because they would beat me up, physically beat me up. And no one helped me. And my grades suffered. I was wildly depressed. And I just got, well, you know, she's got learning difficulties. No, I really don't. I was, you know, I was being <laughs> racially profiled and abused daily, but no one, I, my first day in kindergarten, uh, an adorable little boy spat in my face, called me the N-word and told me to go back to Africa. You know what I mean? And, and so my question was, could these students be having difficulties because of external issues and circumstances that are going unchecked? You know what I mean? And, but it's always the first knee-jerk thought is, oh, well, you know, the blacks, they aren't that smart. So let's just do away with the, <laughs> the program so they can keep up. And, you know, that that idea of black intellectual inferiority, like America built a whole scientific rationalization. Um, Columbia University, my one of my alma maters was, you know, at the center of some of that, you know, pseudoscience. Right. This we didn't have YouTube, but we have been doing this dance Mm -hmm. for like centuries. And so we have to kind of. name that. Also, you know, I think, and I'm seeing this too in the nonprofit sector, right? So uh, I got an invitation um, to share with other Black and Brown colleagues, you know, the answer to racism in the nonprofit sector, and there is a lot of racism in philanthropy, is to start fellowships that focus on helping the victims of crime, you know, um, not be victims. Like, Mm -hmm. You know, this idea that if Black people had more access to leadership development, then our problems as professionals in the sector would go away. You know, just like the idea that 
there's something wrong with the students, not the system. Right, the right. The system. Um, but once you put the onus on the system, then things need to change that people in power don't want to change. Right. It doesn't yeah. serve them. My theory is that every sector is five decisions away from transformational change. Mm, say that one more time, please. I think every se- sector is five decisions away from transformational change. Mm-hmm. But nobody wants to make those five decisions, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, like school financing has a huge impact on um, what students have access to. Like I, I worked at a Harlem organization where my eighth graders literally went to the superintendent's office with a petition to say, we have maxed out your math curriculum in our middle school. Why can't we have algebra? Mm. Kids in district two mm-hmm. were getting algebra as eighth graders and black mm-hmm. and brown kids were being told, wait till you get to high school mm-hmm. and then being penalized, you know, on exams if they hadn't seen the material. Mm-hmm. Like it's one thing to test me on things that you've taught me. But it's, it's something completely different. To test me on something I've never seen sure. before. Absolutely. And to then tell me that I'm the problem and I need to step up my game. So, so when you say there's five, five changes for uh, transformational change in, in education specifically, so finances is one of them. What are some other changes that could be made that you're not seeing these uh, that I, I, I keep on wanting to say the school, but um, that you're that you're not seeing such ignorance being almost boasted. Do you know what I mean? That um, and here I go continuing to be uncomfortable. But um, with schools specifically, and we're mm-hmm. talking inclusion and diversity, um, what sort of changes do you see as? mandatory to not see that level of ignorance right because like from from my so so Stephen, i would say this i think it's really hard to talk about schools out of context with like what's happening in a young person's life so Hmm. for example my grandmother grew up in segregated washington Mm dc she was like for years she thought she had a learning disability Mm. um and then she realized, wait a minute, I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, she just hadn't eaten, right? And so someone connected her with a home economics, you know, old school um, teacher in the building. And she was able to take a class that allowed her to ensure that she had one balanced meal a day. Mm. Right? And the other thing is, right, people are not poor accidentally, mm. right? So... Right. We are intentionally creating poverty so that some people can have more than what they need, right? When we look at um, wages, when we look at um, denying people access to health care, you know, those are all decisions that people are making that absolutely have an impact on what a student can achieve in the classroom. Like the the percentage of, and I I don't have the stat off the top of my head, but, but the percentage of young people in the public schools, living in shelters, generationally, Mm -hmm. I mean, the idea that you want me to do science and I have no idea where I'm going to sleep tonight, come on. Yeah. Right? So all of these things, and and then the idea that we're going to create a school that can insulate kids from everything else that's happening in their lives. Um, is also pretty naive too. So I think school financing is one um, area. I heard this statistic. I thought it was interesting. In 2010, 70% of all new teachers in New York City were white. Mm. Now, I don't know who's doing the math, but you know, clearly, right, mm-hmm. the, the, the number of Black and Latino college graduates has been steadily increasing over the last 50 years right right? so 
that's a decision that someone's making about who deserves to be employed. You know, one of the things that we've started to talk about at Oliver Scholars is the fact that, you know, black and brown students are not getting the full bang for their buck for their, for their degrees, because first we got to borrow more money because we don't have the generational wealth that the that redlining provided to white folks mm-hmm. uh, in terms of home ownership and property ownership. Like we were cut out of that deal. Um, so we're bar- borrowing more money for, for college, um, leaving with higher debt. And then we're going into jobs where we are being paid less than our white and Asian counterparts to do the same work. Like that's a simple decision that someone could be making. That, you know what, I I worked in corporate America for 10 plus years and my job was specifically around talent acquisition, recruiting, workforce management and uh, inclusion and diversity, right? So these tech companies would hire the black girl to come in and fix all of these problems. And I had, but you know, not really fix. Frankie, oh, how much power I'm... did you have? How much power well, did you have? How much did I have or how much did I assert? Because those are, those are two right. very different things. I asserted a lot of power and, 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 you know, had to shortly thereafter transition jobs. So I had no, no real power. Right. But what I noticed, and those DEI professionals don't have real power. No, they don't. They were brought in as figureheads so that the company can say, "Hey, we know systemic racism exists. Look at us change. We're we're one of the good guys. We're on the good side." But what I noticed when I would be in these private meetings with these CEOs, with the C, all the whole C level team, and I'm presenting my plans for just something as basic as, "Hey, we're in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area." we should be actively recruiting at Howard University. Well, are you sure that that's a worthwhile spin? Why wouldn't it be? I mean, explain to me why it's not. They're good Marshall. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I mean, Felicia yeah. Rashad. Mm-hmm. But that's my point, is that we the talk about... School, the, the law school, mm-hmm. like, you know, but that goes back to this whole idea that, eh, you know, you... Say you're smart. Are you really smart if you're black? Are you really right? smart? Yeah. Are you are sure. you really smart? Now yeah. I am not a spring chicken, right? I have a doctorate from an Ivy League institution, and I still tomorrow can be in a room where my expertise will be questioned. Say. And now and I, I actually had to pull up an article that I wrote myself after a white male subordinate tried to mansplain to me about college access. (laughs) And I said, sir, could you Google me? Okay, you should have just said, Google me, bitch. That should have been access. Just put in Danielle Moss and college access. Right. And then I'm going to need you to take Here's an academic journal that I wrote wrote for. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So can you go back to your seat and do what I asked you to do? Actually, several seats. We've, we've allocated this <laughs> wing of the building for you to sit in every one of these seats, sir. I'm going to need you to sit here five, get up, go sit there five, all the seats I need you to have them. But one of the most dangerous, dangerous words in corporate America is corporate culture. And, and that's, that's a scapegoat for... I know I can I can say this. I know when I've brought people in and I'm like, look, and I've, I advocate for my candidates. If I bring someone in, I'm advocating for you, regardless of ethnicity, but even harder if you are black and even harder if you're a woman. I, and I know you're qualified and you're dope. I'm in the room with the hiring manager. and I'm like, look, this is why we are hiring this person. And I've gotten many, many, many people hired from taking a proactive approach. But the first words of pushback have always been, well, yeah, they seem great, but we don't really think they fit in with our corporate culture. Well, define that. What do you mean by that? Because I have this well, white. I mean, who, who who decided what professionalism was? These are all manifestations of what we call in the DAI space white organizational culture. Right. Yeah. And it's a set of norms based on arbitrary values. Yeah. That white men in particular 
have created in ways that benefit themselves, right? And so one of the things that I push people to think about is when you're thinking about at the organizational level, what does DEI look like? To me, at the end of the day, it needs to look like a sense of belonging, right? The last time you felt a sense of belonging, you felt safe. What does safe mean? It means you felt safe to show up as yourself. You felt safe Mm -hmm. to have your contributions be celebrated and recognized. You felt safe to make mistakes and still be treated as part of the team. You felt welcomed without reservation or judgment. You felt included in decision-making processes and conversations, formal and informal, right? You saw possibilities for your growth and learning for promotion. Um, You experienced equity and pay and an opportunity. Um, You felt seen in the space, right? Mm -hmm. We know what it means to belong and we have the capacity to extend that to other people. Mm. And so I think cultural fit in organizations has become an amorphous catch-all phrase for people to enact not just their racism, their sexism, Mm. their homophobia, their transphobia, um, and not really suffer the consequences of what that means. That That doesn't mean that every Black employee is a model employee or is an ideal employee, but it means, are you creating the circumstances? That's what leadership is about. It's Mm -hmm. my job to make sure that I'm creating the circumstances for Gabrielle to shine in her role as as chief development officer. Hey, Gabrielle. Hey, Gabrielle. It's like checking myself on a regular basis to say, you know what? She's smart, she got this, and she knows what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Even when she's approaching something that is not necessarily the way I would do it. Mm-hmm. Right? But that, that goes back yeah. to that benefit of the doubt, right? We saw in an executive leadership, someone who universally, by any stretch of the ma- imagination, was incredibly incompetent. Oh my God. And unprepared. And not even intellectually curious enough to figure out what the job is. Was a buffoon. But we are where we are politically in this moment because white folks get the benefit of the doubt. We are always looking for the other side and hoping that the other side reflects good intention. Right. And black folks. We can't even accept the idea that, yo, maybe this dude is ready to take out democracy. Right. Right, right. How like, do you, we're going to let the whole house burn down because we, we don't have the cojones to really call a thing a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, I was watching this. Um, someone shared a, a, a Twitter thread with me talking about the fact that in some white communities, real talk is not a thing. Right. So yeah. we talk around things. Absolutely. Label them. And so that's I, I can, you know, a light bulb went off for me because I was like, where have I been the least successful? You know, in spaces where I wanted to engage in a real dialogue mm-hmm. and people were being cautious, polite mm-hmm. and ultimately disingenuous. That's not even true. My dear, dear friends. He had, we had this conversation years ago and I was so bad. He said, no, Frankie, we don't do that in white families. We don't talk about anything. We smush it down. We put it, we talk about it in code. We talk around it, but no. And I'm, and I was so baffled because in my household, like it was weird, like, especially in my current, like in my home where it's me and my husband and, and my daughter, we talk about all the stuff and the things, you know what I mean? Like we have very real honest, hilarious, painful. We have all the conversations. Can I ask? And and, and I would say that's one of the reasons that Black women have such a hard time in the workplace. You know, also, you know, we have to recognize that our survival depends on our ability to name and navigate racism. Like, we Mm -hmm. never have the cloak of anything of of, of whiteness right we don't get to say i don't 
you know, what's happening in the white world doesn't concern me. Like, you better be on your P's and Q's. Yeah. Somebody's going to take you out. But Dr. Moss, we don't even have, Black women don't even have the cloak of our femininity either. You know what I mean? We're we're women, white women, I'll, I'll speak plainly, people want to save them. Oh my God, are you, damsel in distress? Oh my God, are you okay? How can I help? I've literally been walking through a door carrying things and have had the man in front of me, black man in front of me, white man in front of me, let the door drop on my full hands. Like, oh, okay. I mean, cool. You know what? Don't even trip. I got it. Steven, you, you've been trying to jump in. What were you going to say? No, I, in response to uh, white families talking less candidly, less openly, very much the case with uh, my Italian side, which is also the much more conservative side. Um, not so much the case on the Irish side. The Irish side, the whole, the only art form that the Irish have is storytelling. But um, <laughs> was it was it a phrase that you guys like said that you can discuss anything but religion and politics? Was that something that like was even yeah. like? <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like a common I've known. Heard, yeah, I've heard that. But only in relation to, like, if you are in mixed company, meaning there are white people in the room, <laughs> stay sure. away from race, you know, politics and religion. Well, even even something as simple as, like, once I started living in Black neighborhoods, like, when I first started living in Black neighborhoods, I would hear people yelling at each other. And I grew up where if you're at a point that you're yelling at one another, you're about to go to fists. Like, you, like you're about to get into, like, a fight. Where I would live in, I've, I've now, shit, I guess it's been five years that I've lived in uh, black neighborhoods where I just know that people, people yelling at each other just means that they are having a lively discussion, right? Like <laughs> where, where when I first moved into the area, I was like, oh my God, people are going to fight all the time around me. And then just because that was like how I grew up was like, you keep you keep shit reserved and you don't talk that much about any of the feelings or any of the things that are making you angry or uncomfortable or anything like that. And if you've gotten to the point that you were raising your voice towards one another, that means that you're probably going to get to fists before you get to any sort of conversation. That's so, that's so and you know, what's interesting about that, right. Is, but, but racism is so violent. Mm. it is absolutely violent. Like, it's not free. Like, imagine if I, as a Black woman, um, had nowhere to go in terms of expressing myself on these issues, right? I, I was talking to a white woman who worked in DEI in corporate America, and she was like, you know, every day I went into that office and I had to prove my worth to my white male colleagues and they didn't see me and they didn't promote me i said but i bet when you but i bet when you went to bloomingdale's after work nobody followed you around the store (laughs) right that part that you nobody tried to get you to pay a higher price for your car or your home simply because you were a white woman that's like i bet you if you called the police you'll get a different reaction than i would that you want to talk to me about what's happening in your office right now and i'm telling you that 24 7 i am constantly doing a calculus like i am in the midst of leaving a physician who i know has not been listening to me because if you ask physicians like today can black people withstand more physical pain than other people speak on that right there's a reason you know that we don't get those xanax and 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 uh percocet prescriptions like we're supposed to be able to withstand pain i'm unfamiliar with that that's a that's a prejudice that yeah there's a whole there's a whole book yeah um, on on the medical profession yeah, racism in the medical profession. It's based Not on mention that we have been the objects of experimentation. experimentation. Yes. Like yes. early gynecologists were performing hysterectomies on black women with no anesthesia. None. 
because it was assumed that the, that black people we can withstand pain, and that and that holds true even to today. To, to today, yeah, to today. I remember. I'll never forget. Um, you may not. You guys may not know this, but my daughter was a preemie. I had her at 24 weeks. Normal gestation is 40 weeks, right? I had her at 24 weeks. So technically four months before she was born, supposed to be born. She was due on my birthday, November 6th. I had her July 19th, right? When she came home, she came home December 22nd and we were driving. Um, this was some months after she came home, maybe three to six months. And we were driving to the store somewhere and she had um, respiratory issues from being born so early and her lungs not being fully developed. And I, I'll never forget, I'm driving down the highway and she's sounding weird that I'd been trained from having her with me for so long that if she starts breathing, it's called fast breathing, where, where your child sounds kind of like a puppy. They're kind of panting. That's a sign that they're in respiratory duress and you need to get them to a hospital like now, right? Um, and I turn around and, and sure enough, she's fast breathing. So I'm like, okay, crap. And I see a clinic and I and like literally as I'm like, oh, God clearly put this here. I need to pull over and get my baby here and get her to a hospital. I walk in. The white doctor was sitting behind the counter. I will never in all the years that I live will ever forget this. And I'm carrying my infant daughter, tiny little baby, beautiful, gorgeous baby daughter. And I'm crying because I'm alone in the car. And I want to say my cell phone didn't work. But there was a, so I come inside and I say, can you please help me? My baby's a, a preemie. She's fast breathing. She's in respiratory duress. I can't help you. You need to call an ambulance. And I said, sir, please. And I'm, I'm bawling at this point. And I'm saying, sir, please. Can you just look her over while I call an ambulance? No, there's nothing I can do for you here. You're about 10, 15 minutes from the hospital. You need to take her to the hospital. Didn't ask me, didn't want to look at my insurance, didn't even think just on the oath of being a doctor, I should help this child. Did not care. And I will, for all of the life I live, I'll never forget me crying, holding her outside, calling in the ambulance because I'm afraid I can't get, I'm not, this isn't my area, trying to get her to, to a doctor. And this person told me, no, I won't even take a second to just look at her and see, okay, you know what? You do need, you need emergency assistance now, or yes, you'll be fine to get yeah. to an ER. You know well, what I mean? Remember it, Serena Williams talked about the fact that she almost she lost her daughter. Died. Yeah. Because yeah. of medical neglect. You know yeah. what we say in the community is like the, the doctors are to black women, what cops are to black men. Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. There, there has been a strange and violent and inhuman history um, that that connects black women in the medical profession in America. I mean, I remember talking to a Princeton based um, black woman physician who had a white husband and was having some difficulties with a delivery. And her white doctor asked her white husband, you don't want a whole bunch of biracial kids. Do you want me to um, sterilize her while I'm in there? Jesus Christ. What? He's like, sir, Jesus. that what? is my wife. What? Yes. What? Yeah. How, when was this? Or like when? This would have been in the 80s. Damn. You know, not like, you know, 1945. Right? I can't, my brain. So, so, the, so the, the thing is this, right? All those bigots who were against Martin Luther King Jr. Like some of those folks are still alive. A lot of those, those kids had kids. You know, just because they weren't on the six o'clock news anymore doesn't mean that there was a transformational um, transition in terms of their foundational beliefs. And I think, you know, everybody's like, oh, I'm so surprised. It's just like, no, these people have been here the whole time. Mm. Right. And we were seeing their anger play out in 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 communities of color in, in a myriad of ways it is this weird thing that oh, I, I i grew up in a uh white and latino area and it's this thing that you maybe it's blindness but you don't really realize like how people perceive people of other races until 
you're in mixed company or they speak about it. So like there would just be people that I would coexist with and be friends with. And then, and it would just never come up, up until it did. And, um, it is, I don't know. Yeah. It's just this, this wild thing that you don't really know that you're living amongst, uh, for lack of better words, just fucking monsters. Um, and you know, where I'm, where I'm from is, you know, people, white people really let their colors show, I guess they, their lack of color show, (laughs) um, um, over the last four years too, there were just a lot of people that, you know, if I had to take a guess, they didn't have very progressive views, but I just didn't realize the, um, extent to which it existed where I grew up, you know? Um, and yeah, to hear shit like that is always, Disturbing. Always yeah, disturbing. You know, if you ever have some spare time, I have been recommending this book to everybody I talk to. It's called Cast, uh, The Origins of Our Discontent. It's by a woman named Isabel Wilkerson, um, an award-winning um, journalist who used to work for the New York Times. And it she really kind of helps to frame what this wall is right and so we have a caste system um very much like india one of the things that i didn't know until i read the book was that the nazis looked to the american south to figure out how to oppress people yeah say that one, was- i'm sorry i'm gonna need you to rewind that back and say yeah. that again like yeah. the nazis sent people to the american south to study Jim Crow and to learn how to thoroughly yeah. oppress people. How gross is that? How yeah. Yeah. apartheid yeah. is based on Jim Crow. Yeah. Like they didn't make that up. They apartheid is post Jim Crow. Jesus yeah. Christ. Hitler Hitler used to write about like how he was taking note of what the south was doing and how he's just built upon it basically um everything that's a horrific fact that's just a horrific the nazis thought that the one drop rule was too harsh you know the one drop rule is <laughs> if you don't know what the one drop rule is no nah, i'm not familiar you know, if you don't huh I'm not yeah, explain the one drop rule. Oh my goodness. If you have one drop of black blood you're black and therefore you know subject to all of the things that you should be subject to as a black person. Wow. So that, so that would be like someone, why someone, let's say Mariah Carey, who probably, you know, could pass in certain spaces. Rashida you know, Jones. Is, yeah, is firmly planted in their black identity because historically, if you had one, one drop, drop, one little, ee, ee. well, we're going to stop there. The Nazis thought that was too tough. That's that's an amazing piece of, that's an incredibly telling piece of history. Think about, I want anyone watching this black, white, Puerto Rican, it doesn't matter. Just think about that. Read that that book. Read the book. Oh, I wrote it down. I'm going to be reading that. And and Um, Dr. Moss, so cast with an E at the end, C-A-S-T. Yes. Cast the origins of our discontent and the author is Isabel Wilkerson. Excellent. How can people find you? How can they donate, get involved with Oliver Scholars? OliverScholars.org. You can find out all the information we have. I mean, these kids are amazing, incredible, a lot smarter than I ever was. So it's just such a privilege and delight to be working with them. Um, My main uh, channel is LinkedIn. So look for me on LinkedIn. Excellent. Where I share all my opinions on all the things. Well, we uh, want to hear all of the opinions. It is our honor and pleasure to have you. Please, of course, we expect you to come back and back and back and back. Um, you're amazing and fantastic. Gabrielle, thank you, you for guys. hanging out backstage and, and, and watching with us. We appreciate you as well. Jared from uh, a Comedy Hub, thank you so much for being such a wonderful producer and engineer. And- I've been French. And we have our comedy showcase at the end of the month. Where we're raising money for all of our scholars. Um, uh, February 28th, we've got the show. 
Um, so keep watching every Tuesday. I'm sure we'll have Dr. Tell people about the, the lineup's pretty dope. Tell people about the comedy show lineup. Who all do we have? We got Mike, Mike. Mm-hmm. Aaron Jackson. Who just, whose Netflix special just aired today on uh, Netflix with Tiffany Haddish, They Ready. So check that out. And we have Brandy Denise, who is a, a comedian and actress. You can see her um, on Power and the new Power. I can't remember what the new one's called right now because I'm an idiot. But hey. yeah, the lineup is, is dope and amazing. So definitely check us out at the end of the month. Always so enlightening to speak with you, Dr. Moss. Um, so good. So good. Can't wait until next time. Thank you so much. Thank for taking you. The Thank time. you, guys. And uh, What's your name? Which one? Oh, my name is Stephen Campbell. <laughs> my- <laughs> I just, you know, all this talk about white people trying to overshadow black people. I'm just like, I'm irrelevant. <laughs> I'm being very meek, very stained. My <laughs> um, but love you guys. Thank you so much. And thank, thank you, you so for much, guys. This was so good. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Moss. You okay. are Jeff. This has been uh, uh, Nonprofits. Hey. <laughs> All right, we're clear. That was.